Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll speak to a police chief about recent crime in his town and his remarks that the incidents are tied to the way Connecticut has reformed its juvenile justice laws. Advocates are pushing back. More on that later. First, Elizabeth Esty was first elected to serve Connecticut's 5th Congressional District in 2012, a district with a politically diverse constituency. Over the next six, six years, she took on big issues from legislation to reduce gun violence to health care and veterans issues. But her time in the U.S. House came to a surprising halt in April over criticism of Esty's handling of a complaint by a former staffer who accused Esty's once chief of staff of abusive behavior. Within days of that story breaking, Esty would decide not to run for re-election in November. Today, where we live, we invited Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty to come to our studio to talk about her time in the U.S. House and to find out what's next for her. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty back to our show. Thanks for coming in today. Well, great to see you. Can I ask what the last few months have been like for you? Well, surprisingly busy. You know, very busy. I actually had a bill signed by the president this past week on an area where I think you know um, we've talked about before on STEM education and support for women and girls and kids of color, um, an issue I'm passionate about and matters a lot to our state and our district, and had another bill uh, pass through the House. So may I hope we'll pass the Senate. So I've been busy. I've been running hearings on veterans issues. So I've been much busier than I would have anticipated being right up here to the end. And as you know, sadly, Congress, uh, the Republican leadership, much like a college student who's not ready to turn in a paper, got an extension. And we have to go back to Washington this week and try to finalize a budget. You've had a, a lot of work on your plate as you have the last six years, uh, but I, I asked you about you know how the last few months have been because of uh, what happened in April, that story that broke, uh, a lot of criticism over how you handled handled it. You even had fellow Democrats asking you to resign, and so that must be quite a gut punch for you. Well, it was it was hard, and you know it's a it's a point in time. Um, you know there was quite a firestorm then, uh, and. There are things I certainly know now that I think many of us would approach these issues differently. Um, at the time, it was in, back in 2016, it was a domestic dispute that I learned about. A lot of things, um, frankly, weren't very clear in the reporting, I should say, last spring. I wish it had been reported in 2014 when it was going on, and I could have done something then. Um, I'm very glad that uh, I was able to help, along with a lot of other people, get legislation that was passed through the House and the Senate for greater accountability in Congress so that hopefully if this kind of situation arises in somebody else's office, people will feel they can report it to the member of Congress and that they can go to the House authorities. And none of that happened in my case. So I, you know, I was in the dark about all this. And, and that you know, pained me greatly, and obviously the people in my office too. I didn't know what was going that this was going on because people f were worried about reporting it because of that history 
because of that history in Congress. And I hope this legislation is going to help change that. That's important to change that. You mentioned that uh, there were things that weren't clear in reporting uh, that you wish had been. Uh, do you want to clear the record now? What are some of the things that you want your constituency and the rest of Connecticut to know about how you handled this? Well, I think the most important thing, and I find people at church, et cetera, don't understand that um, and. Anna had not worked for me since March of 2015. So when I got a report of um, really inappropriate behavior, but third-hand report about people drinking at a party, phone calls made, uh, nasty, scary messages left, I only knew it was a single, isolated domestic issue between people who used to date. Um, I had no other context. I don't have experience in this. Nothing had been filed. Nothing had directly been brought to my attention. So there weren't any mechanisms within the House. There were no filings ever made, no requests ever made. So I chose to do an investigation, but she wasn't working for me. And as far as I knew, it was I'd seen nothing that would suggest there was a pattern here or that anything had happened in the office. So I really felt it was important, and I still do. I think due process is important. So I regret that it took so long. I mostly regret that it ever happened and that I didn't know about it at the time and could have stopped it dead in its tracks back in 2014. I did the best I could imperfectly um, in 2016, but we see the world very differently now, you know, and I think different standards. But I will say this, Lucy, I do think we've got to figure out how to have process and things because it's just, it's the American way to do that. And had it been an isolated incident, it would have been wrong to fire somebody over that without actually looking. I would want that, and I'll tell you why as well. In, in our country, we know that if we don't have due process, it's people who don't have power who get hurt most. And that tends to be women and children and people of color and poor people, the people I've been fighting for my whole life. And so if we throw a process out the window for immediate showing how strongly we're opposed to something, we're all at risk. And so I, I don't apologize about having news process. When you mentioned due process, so you t undertook an investigation mm -hmm. of your chief of staff, and it took about three months. And then once you were able to get uh, the information that you needed, he no longer was your chief of staff. But you know, people still wonder, why did you give him a recommendation for another job? Yeah, I know. I, that, I will say, my thinking at the time, and all I can say is my thinking at the time, was that, um, and I will say also, Anna's the same age as my daughter, who'd also worked, uh, you know, in and around Washington. And my understanding of what she wanted at the time was she wanted him out of Washington. And I knew he'd be able to get another job with or without my recommendation. Someone who's got 10 years experience in Washington can get another job. <laughs> and I thought the best thing I could do is try to do everything in my power to get him to leave D.C. so that she could pursue her career and her life there not having to see him. And I saw that as an opportunity mm. to um, encourage him to leave D.C., leave her alone, and my office, too, everybody else in the office. And that's what I was focused on at the time, really, was that. Looking at, back at it today, would you have done things differently? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, well, certainly when I got an initial report, third-hand report in May, um, I would have, I think I would have put him on leave right then and... Um, and now, again, there are resources available now, you know, the Office of Employee Assistance and things um, that really weren't – it wasn't clear that those were available then, and again, because there wasn't anything filed. So I would have put him 
uh, you know, suspended him and done a rapid investigation and hired outside counsel and things that, you know, again, I didn't get counsel to do that. I followed the advice that I got at the time. I would, I don't think that was good advice. And I've let, I've let folks in Congress know that I think the advice that was given to me, the people I spoke to, I thought that advice was bad. And I think that needs to be changed. And some of these things will change with the new legislation that's been passed. So talk about um, some of the changes, because my understanding, there was a report in roll call that there's a House uh, legislation about how to deal with sexual harassment. There's a Senate version, but there hasn't come to agreement yet. And if that once the end of the year comes, um, if they don't vote on it, then you start at square one again. And so I'm wondering um, what kind of process would have helped you make the right decision? Well, actually, I have update on that because on Thursday, in fact, there there were deals all last week, and and I have to say, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, senator from uh, from Minnesota, has been a real champion and helped broker a deal which passed a compromise that was closer to the House bill, which is a better bill, to be perfectly honest, it was a tougher bill. Um, actually, passed through both the House and the Senate on Thursday. So we now have a bill that the same language, and it's now headed to the president's desk for signature. So we will that will be getting signed uh, into law. So that will make changes now. There and one of the important changes in that, and I can say this having been an intern on Capitol Hill when I was 19 years old, this will now extend protection to interns. It'll extend protection to uh, fellows, like there are wounded warrior fellows who work on Capitol Hill, the Brookings Institute, other uh, other nonprofits, place policy fellows. And I think it's really important that everybody, all 13,000 people who work on Capitol Hill, should have the kinds of protections that in the private sector you're entitled to. Can you um, speak in detail um, with when you say there's a common language now between both chambers? Um, my understanding, again, is the House um, the, had uh, come up with an independent office for employee advocacy, while the Senate wanted the Ethics Committee to police its own members. That can be problematic, having your colleagues be the ones to say um, you know, how you handle a situation and what should be uh, the recourse. All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking at the sheet now because, again, we this was being voted on. Thursday after the House was out of sort of formal session. So it's eliminate, it will eliminate the 30-day mandatory counseling period, and that was a big issue. Um, it, it disallows requiring arbitration, and that was part of my position and part of the reason I spoke to the Washington Post reporter, is I believe the confidentiality should rest in the hands of the aggrieved party. The person who has been harassed sh- should have a choice about whether they want to go public or not. And it shouldn't be the offending, typically it's the member of Congress, who's able to try to deep six this. Um, it, the dispute resolution process, it's changed. Um, there's a new process. And yes, we did end up adopting the House version, which is an Office of Congressional Workplace Rights. And that was really the big issue. Is there going to be an independent advocate and that provision, my understanding, again, because I haven't seen the text, is that that, um, that was secured so that an employee or an intern or a fellow can go and get representation that's independent for them in this process. And that was one of the most important pieces that was not present in the old system. 
This is where we live. Elizabeth Esty is in studio with us as we talk about her time representing Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. Uh, she made the decision not to run for re-election in November. Uh, last uh, week, she gave her final address to the House floor. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Do you hope to um, go back to Washington in some capacity? And I'm just curious, again, because you've been a committed public servant. Um, even before you went to Congress, uh, you served in the Connecticut General Assembly prior to that with in uh, your town of Cheshire. Uh, what's next for you? Well, what's next is taking a bit of a break. Um, I've, looking back on it, I think I've gone pretty much nonstop since 2005. So that's 13 years. Um, I've got a mother who's got, as so many of us with older parents has, who has Alzheimer's. She's in California. I really have not spent the kind of time with her that I would want to, and that's important to do because the clock is ticking there. Um, my husband is a professor. He's got up for a sabbatical to do some writing this spring. So we'll be taking some time. And there's some things I want to write. And I've kind of given myself to the summer to think about what comes next and see what opportunities look like they make sense to do next. Do you think that you'll be able to put this incident behind you if you wanted to go back into politics, Congresswoman? Well, I'm not looking at electoral politics at all. I, what I'm passionate about is making a difference in public service. And there are a lot of ways to do that. So I'll, I'll be looking for something more on the policy front. Uh, that's always been what I've been passionate about. And the, the biggest challenge is trying to pick a more limited area to work in. One of the great things about Congress is you get to help individuals, but you also get to work across a broad area of public policy. And that's been you know, truly, uh, truly a joy and a chance to see connections. Uh, before we head to break, uh, we should mention that you were elected uh, right uh, uh, before the tragedy in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, last Friday was six years uh, since uh, those uh, that mass shooting that took uh, so many uh, innocent lives. Uh, you really focused on uh, legislation to change gun laws in the nation. Is that a big frustration for you as you leave to see uh, that not much has been accomplished there? Well, it's a mixed bag. Yes, it's a, been a huge frustration. You know, my single greatest frustration legislatively is that we couldn't get action taken there, not very much. However, I will say the importance of gun safety as an election issue this fall was the highest it's ever been. And we know that a number of seats, particularly in the House, flipped over that issue. And I will say the only sitting Republican senator who lost was Dean Heller of Nevada. And Dean Heller is the infamous, I would say not just famous, the infamous Supreme Court decision that for the first time declared that the Second Amendment is an individual right. He lost. He lost to Jackie Rosen, who is a friend, a, a former head of her synagogue who was committed to gun safety. And we saw seat after seat flip in the House over that issue. It was the number four issue, number four issue. Um, in the nation. Uh, so we've got some new champions like Lucy McBath, whose son Jordan was gunned down in a gas station um, in 2012, the same year as Newtown. And I met her in 2012 or 13. We've become friends. She was elected to the seat in Georgia that used to belong to Newt Gingrich. So just think about how much things have changed with that switch. 
Elizabeth Esty again is in studio here on Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue our discussion with her, uh, talk about some of the issues uh, that she really focused on and what she hopes uh, her legacy will be. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're sitting down with Connecticut's 5th District Representative, Elizabeth Esty, who's leaving Congress after deciding not to run for re-election in November. She served in the U.S. House for six years. Prior to her work in Washington, as I mentioned, she was a member of Connecticut's General Assembly, and she started in politics in her town of Cheshire. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266, and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Congresswoman Esty, uh, talk about uh, some of the uh, topics that you focused on that you think that you've really accomplished and what you want to see your colleagues continue to work on. Let's start with the opioid crisis. Well, this is an issue I really started working on in the state legislature um, because I could see at that point it was prescription drug abuse that we were seeing happening. And I remember Chris Liddy, who represented Newtown, he and I worked hard, unsuccessfully at the time, but I will say has now become law that uh, the drugstores would take back unused opioids. We were fighting to get that done. Um, But now that we've tightened up, as we have so much on abuse of prescription drugs, it's spun over into synthetic and and other on-the-street opioids, which sadly, as you know, because NPR has done such a great job covering this story, New England is the hotbed for this, and Connecticut has the third highest overdose, overdose death rate in the country. It's just awful. It's heartbreaking. And I've seen f- and met families from all over this district of all walks of life, all ages, ethnicities, backgrounds. It's a non-discriminating killer. Um, so we have to do better. So there, this is an example actually where despite all the dysfunction we talk about in Congress, a bipartisan group of 70 members of Congress in the House got together and created our own task force, which I've been part of. And we held hearings. We did legislation together. And some pieces of that became part of the the, the big overall opioid bill a couple of years ago. I was on the conference committee for that and was able to get some of my provisions in about educating physicians and prescribers, making them more aware of the risks. And frankly, that includes parents athletic coaches and others who may see um, the risks and see injuries, particularly among young people who get addicted. What's your take on the class action suits that have been brought against pharmaceutical companies like Purdue Pharma here in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, who um, uh, manufactured OxyContin? Um, Is that where uh, focus should go, is um, finding that pharmaceutical companies uh, need to pay for false advertising and their contributions to this crisis? I think it's appropriate that that be part of the mix. I remember in this last year, I met a man in his 80s whose son died 10 years ago when he was in his 40s. And he tried at the time to get to get information. And he said he saw documents, but he couldn't get them into court that showed that the drug companies knew that these were very addictive and went ahead with them anyway. And I do think our legal system plays a role in holding people accountable. And part of that also is forward going You need to be really careful. These are people's lives. These drugs were too powerful and too addictive. And 
we need to make sure that going forward, this doesn't happen again. And one way you do that is holding the people who knew, sh- knew or should have known better, make them pay. And that's going to make the next person think about what their responsibility is. Uh, when you were uh, uh, serving uh, for six years, transportation uh, infrastructure was a key focus of yours. You were even part of a bipartisan plan called the Problem Solvers Caucus. Uh, uh, where should uh, investment be going uh, when we think about uh, infrastructure? Um, how do we get people off the roads that we know are uh, crumbling as we speak? Well, we need to get things fixed, but we also need to do it in a smart way. And that was part of, I was the co-chair of this bipartisan group, which I think actually there's a real opportunity in the next six months of the new Congress. Um, It's a very high priority, I know, for the Democrats in the House to try to get something passed. The president has said he's interested in doing this. So I, I do think there's a window of opportunity. And there's a lot we could and should be doing. Um, we should be rebuilding to tougher, better standards. And I'll I'll just use a sort of nerdy example, but to show the importance. Uh, Climate change is happening. We see it happening with the dramatic rainfalls. Now, if we – there are new paving uh, surfaces that are more permeable, that allow water to flow through, and that actually helps with flooding situations. Well, Houston didn't use that. And guess what? When they got hit with that huge storm, they had massive damage and they had loss of life. Well, some of that research has been done in Connecticut and elsewhere to figure out, like, how can we rebuild smarter? And that's one of the things that I passed legislation for innovative materials to look at things we can do that when we spend your taxpayer dollars, it's done in ways that are anticipating needs for resiliency, uh, longer lifespan. And Connecticut's an innovative state, so we've got a lot of that research going on here, and I want to see that going into play when these, the spending that has to happen does happen. Uh, should there be an increase in the gas tax, uh, again, to have people think more about public uh, transit versus just getting in their car? We need to fund transportation in a reasonable way. Um, and we're going to end up having to change from the gas tax. You know, it's a few more and more people are driving hybrid cars, electric cars, natural gas vehicles, like our bus fleets are natural gas. They aren't paying anything into the system. As a net result, we only are collecting 60% of the money that was collected 20 years ago when the gas tax was last changed. So there's innovative. We've passed legislation. and We've got innovative things happening in parts of the country like Oregon, which is looking at vehicle miles traveled. There are different ways we're going to have to pay for it, but you don't get something for nothing. We've always paid for transportation with user fees, and I think that people are okay with that. They just want to see stuff get fixed. That's what people want to see. They want to know that it's going to get fixed and it's going to be fair and it's going to be done right. You can join our conversation with Congresswoman Elizabeth Esty. Uh, Mark's calling from New Milford. Mark, go ahead. You're on where we live. Yes, good day, Elizabeth Esty. Mark Hainan in here. I, I don't know if you remember me. I, I corresponded with you a couple times over some probate issues, and I I asked you to get the FBI to help me in my case to um, to bring down the corruption that's in the probate courts and uh, it extends into the other courts because the other courts just support the probate court uh, rulings usually. And uh, the probate court is very foul in this state and in most states. But uh, I especially was a victim of corruption and foul play. And uh, my mom died with a clean title and tried to give her estate to my brother and myself. 
My brother is dead now from a drug overdose, a heroin overdose, because uh, he did somehow manage to funnel some of the money from the sale of the estate uh, to his drug for his drugs. Uh, Mark, Mark, we're short on time. Do you have a question for Congresswoman Esty? Yes. Is there is there any way? Is there any advice you might be able to, to give me to go forward with my um my request for FBI assistance in this matter? I I was just wondering. I got a letter recently from President sure. Trump. I've gotten support from President Obama. I've gotten uh, letters from Senator Edward Kennedy. Uh, Senator Blumenthal is uh, aware of, of this matter. I've gotten a lot of support from uh, political people, but no help. No right, legal sure. help. Let's, okay. let's have her, Congresswoman Essie respond. All right. Um, well, again, Mark, I know it's a tragic situation that you've encountered with your family, and I'm really sorry about the loss of your brother. That kind of underscores what Lucy and I were just talking about. Well, the issue of probate courts is a serious one, and there certainly have been a number of uh, incidents in this state over the last few years that have come to light um, with real concern. So I would say, especially in our state where we elect probate judges, the place in, in our state to deal with probate really is at the state level because that's where those standards need to be applied. Not all states have elected probate judges, so that might be something to look at and and talk about and what, what baseline standards should be. And, and those are all very fair points. And again, I'm so sorry for uh, your brother's loss and for the ongoing challenges you've had. We just have a, a few minutes left, Congresswoman Esty. Uh, what are you most proud of? I think the work that we've been able to do on the Veterans Committee really stands out. Um, I've done a, a tremendous amount of work with veterans. There are 40,000 veterans in the 5th District, and I've been lucky to have an excellent staff both in the district office and in D.C. And folks came to us with, with issues for their for their family members and for themselves, but also that helped bring up sort of larger issues that we could make a difference on. The last two years I've been on the Veterans Committee, I've been the ranking member of the Disability Appeals Subcommittee. We've gotten a tremendous amount done. The committee has passed 40 bills out of committee, working through the regular process, things to provide respite care for caregivers, thing, uh, legislation to provide better counseling support for women and men who are victims of military sexual trauma. We've passed legislation that I led for cost of living increases for veterans. And frankly, one of the things I'm proudest of, I just learned about the last two weeks, was that an issue I've been pushing the VA on is that they are now overhauling all of their notice letters to be understandable in plain English. I have been bugging them and saying, like, you need you need to make sure veterans don't have to have a PhD or a, a an advanced degree in law to understand these letters. Well, they're now actually overhauling them, and they told me it was because of the case I'd made to them. And they, uh, that I know is going to make a difference, reduce appeals, improve things for veterans. So I, I would say that work has been, without a doubt, sort of the most gratifying and the clearest example of bipartisan public service, everyone working together and how the committees are supposed to work. Uh, your successor, Johanna Hayes, will be sworn in uh, just after the new year. Uh, when I spoke with her when uh, she won uh, in November, she said that uh, you had called her a couple of times. I'm just curious, have you, have you spoken with her? And what's your advice to Johanna Hayes? What's your advice to her? Well, I am delighted that, she's deci- that she decided to step up. I've actually known her for a couple of years. I got to know her 
when she was elected, uh, was recognized as National Teacher of the Year. And I've been urging her to run. I didn't expect it would be for my seat, but, you know, I am thrilled that she's going to be, I know, a powerful and effective voice in Congress. And I give her the same advice that that I would give any member of Congress is what John Dingell, longest serving member of Congress, advice he gave me, he said, remember what you do is very important, but you are not important. And it's your job to know your district and vote your district. And and Johanna and I have talked a lot about that. So if this is such a diverse district, you mentioned it, 41 cities and towns, uh, rural and urban, rich and poor, uh, farmers and high tech and everything in between. And that's a wonderful district to represent, but it's challenging. And uh, you're just, you know, get out where people are. Get out where people are and don't wait for them to come to you. She's got a big heart and a sharp mind as a teacher. She's a great learner and I have very high hopes. I know she'll do a tremendous job. Elizabeth Esty again uh, served Connecticut's 5th Congressional District for six years. Uh, we want to thank you, Congresswoman Esty, for joining us here on Where We Live. Well, thanks so much. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Connecticut has received praise in recent years for implementing reforms to its juvenile justice system. But additional reforms that went into effect in 2017 have been singled out by the chief state's attorney and now some police. They say changes to juvenile delinquent laws are the cause of car thefts in certain areas. We're going to talk with the Weathersfield police chief after the break and hear how advocates for juveniles are responding. You can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut has been lauded for changes to laws that impact juvenile justice, but recent events in the town of Wethersfield has its police chief calling on lawmakers to make some adjustments. To explain, we invited James Satran into our studio. He's the police chief for the town of Wethersfield. Chief Satran, welcome to our show. Thank you very much. I understand uh, there were two violent incidents in Wethersfield uh, in recent, uh, like the last month or so. Uh, tell us what happened in your town. Actually, uh, just only happened within the last two weeks. Uh, the first incident was uh, a 13-year-old boy was waiting at the uh, bus stop alone, school bus stop, uh, waiting to go to the middle school, when two carloads of youths who had stolen cars in West Hartford drove into Wethersfield, probably looking for more cars to steal, when they saw the boy alone and they decided to rob him. Uh, the boy was reluctant to turn over his phone when asked. They knocked him down, punched him, kicked him, and stole his phone and his backpack. We later recovered the car. Uh, Hartford police actually recovered the car on Wethersfield Avenue, and uh, the backpack uh, with the Chromebook was still there. So they didn't care about that. What they did care about was the phone, which is beyond my comprehension. And then there was another incident related to a man who was robbed in front of his apartment? Yes. Uh, a man went out to the corner store uh, to get something. He noticed a black Mercedes had stopped when he was about to leave. And then he got back to his apartment half a mile away. And then he saw the same car pulling into the, the parking lot. So he got nervous. He figured something was up. 
and he ran for the apartment door. He got into the vestibule, the foyer, uh, when three youths wearing ski masks, all carrying guns, decided to rob him, asked him for his keys. Um, he was reluctant to give up his keys, and uh, they proceeded to beat and hurt him and steal his keys. I think he's very lucky that he wasn't shot uh, because they all had guns. Those same kids probably driving his car, crashed in Hartford a couple hours later, um, ran from the car. Uh, a Hartford police officer observed that, um, called him for some help, got help from the state police and the Capitol Police, surrounded the parking garage, not too far from here as a matter of fact, on Farmington Avenue, and uh, captured uh, the four kids, recovered three guns, and found the ski masks um, that they were wearing. So we know the age and we know the, the, the persons that were involved in the crime. Um, and it seems to be escalating. It seems to be getting, going from uh, breaking into cars to now stealing cars and then now robbing people with those cars. You said it seems to be escalating. Uh, so these are two uh, incidents that you re recounted uh, over the last uh, few weeks. But, I mean, how prevalent is this? Is it a handful of, of youth that are um, you know, perpetrating these crimes? And I'm just curious about what you're seeing uh, with data in Weathersfield uh, that, that, that is impacting your residents. Well, I, can, I have the data here, and it is a significant increase in the crimes. Um, <clears throat> Whether or not it's the same individuals each time or if it's a, a diverse group, I would lean towards more of a diverse group, that it's quite a few because it's not just Wethersfield. And I've said this before. Every chief that I talk to, I'm president of the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association, say the same thing. It's, it's unrelenting. It's continuous. Um, so it can't be the same kids from the same neighborhoods doing the same crime. It's just all over the place. And it's not even just our state. It's happening in other states, too. I know it's happening in Rhode Island. I know it's happening in Massachusetts. It's the uh, rise in car thefts by juveniles. Well, it's the rise of the car breaks that start. Um, and then the car thefts just go along with that. In other words, if they go into a car that's unlocked, they rifle through the car and they find product uh, property that they can steal, they'll steal it. If the keys are left in the car or if the, the fob is too close to the car, uh, they can push the button and the car starts, then they'll steal the car. Uh, just a week and a half ago or so, we had an, another situation in Weathersfield where a guy had two cars in his driveway. The first car in the driveway was unlocked. Someone got into the car, uh, used the garage door opener, opened the garage door, went into the house, and stole the keys. Now, don't forget, this is an occupied house that the people are there. They're sleeping. They stole the keys, came back out. Now they had to jockey the car out of the parking space in front of the car behind it. Uh, they, they did close the garage door for him, though. At least they did that for him, and then they drove off in his car. So these are the type of crimes that are occurring. And then what happens is that if the police spot these cars, these stolen cars, and try to stop them, they drive like maniacs. There's no fear. There's no fear of repercussions. They you told the current, I wish the juvenile justice system could take a step back. I think that's a huge reason why we're having uh, this problem. So what do you want to see change within uh, the laws that impact uh, juvenile delinquents? Well, 
the the first thing is I don't want to see it raise again, which has been proposed. In other words, they want to make 18, 19, and 20-year-olds juveniles. That would make our job extremely difficult. Why is it difficult if a, a youth is considered a juvenile delinquent versus being transferred to adult court for a crime? Well, there's a big difference. First off, you can't speak to a juvenile until his uh, parent or guardian are present. So you could catch somebody in a very serious crime, let's say like that robbery of that gentleman, though that person could be speaking, telling you what happened, and you can't use that in a court of law until his parent or guardian. And the problem that we're having with the parents and guardians is that either they're extremely tough to track down, or even if you do track them down, to have them come to the station to pick up their child, um, they don't want to hear it. They're unresponsive, to say the least. So we're stuck with a child. Uh, if you, um, That's going to be, we can only hold them a max of six hours. Now we're between a rock and a hard place. How, we can't bring them to detention. They won't take the child unless it's a serious juvenile offense and it's approved by a, a judge. We can't just let them go. Uh, so somehow, some way, we've got to maneuver either uh, a responsible adult that's a relative or somehow get this person back to his house. But that now, you, you leave them there, so the next night they're out again doing the same type of crimes. And that's happened over and over again. I wanted to bring another perspective into our discussion. Leon Smith is director of the Racial Justice Project for the Connecticut-based Center for Children's Advocacy. Leon, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you were able to hear from uh, Chief James Satran from Weathersfield, and you've heard uh, the points that he's brought up, that other police have brought up, as well as uh, Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. How do you respond uh, to uh, their assertion that there is a tie between changes in juvenile justice laws here in the state to what they're seeing in their towns? Well, first thing, it sounds like it's very speculative. Um, when you're talking about making policy change, you don't make it on anecdotes and you don't make it on speculating that it may be the same group of kids or it may be a wider group. You need to have data, both quantitative and qualitative data. I'm not discounting um, that there are some incidents, but I think we need to ensure that we have um, comprehensive data around the state showing frequency, showing and measuring whether or not it is just one group of kids who are doing things repeatedly or a larger group. We don't have that, and I feel like um, there's just a lot of speculation going on that's very dangerous. Secondly, um, I, I strongly disagree with the idea that nothing can happen. Um, a child can be detained in the state of Connecticut if there's a finding by a judge that that child is a risk to public safety. That option is still there. Um, secondly, we still, the Connecticut Juvenile Training School may have closed, but we still have beds in the detention center for kids who repeatedly engage in behavior um, and are sentenced. So they're not going to CJTS anymore, but there are still those options. So I don't believe that there needs to be a change in law. Under the current laws, there are options. The biggest thing for me, and I want to just, you know, talk about this. You're talking about detention. You're talking about putting young people where to lock kids up effectively is what I feel like a lot of the rhetoric has been. That's a short-term fix. You're removing a young person from the community. What are you doing long-term to address the underlying reasons why kids 
are out there and why kids are getting in trouble. It's not enough simply to say we need to be tougher or we need to incarcerate. There's, a, there's this false dichotomy a lot of times in criminal and juvenile justice that at one end you have locking people up and at the other extreme you have just letting people go. In the middle of that, there's a huge area where there's treatment, where there's best practices, where there are things that are being tried and that are working in other states to more effectively address these issues than incarcerating. And I think if we're going to have a conversation about this, and clearly, um, you know, my heart goes out to um, the victims of those offenses that he mentioned, but let's also talk about what types of programs, what types of treatment. Um, what type of best practices can we implement to help these young people who've gone off track so that they don't become these kids who repeat these offenses in ju as juveniles and so that they also don't become these young people who, once they become adults, become repeat offenders. We want to be able to address the underlying causes of this behavior so that we don't have um, this sort of recidivism. And I think that needs to be a part of the conversation as well. Leon, I wanted to have uh, Chief Satran uh, respond to uh, your points. Uh, uh, Leon was saying that uh, you know more needs to be done to provide services to kids versus locking them up. How do you respond, Chief? Well, I never said that I wanted to see these kids locked up. I have no problem with providing services to them as long as they're funded. The, the problem yeah. that I have is that the, the, it wasn't prepared for. In other words, when they, they raised the age the first time, 16 and 17-year-olds, they didn't prepare for what to do with these kids that we catch that are committing these type of crimes uh, without putting them in, incarcerating them. Well, fine. I don't really care which way they go. What I do care is the fact that the crime rate has gone up so much in concerning these juveniles. And you can say that it's anecdotal and you can say that it's uh, subjective, but I've listened to some of these kids and what they've said, and it doesn't sound that way to me. They know that they're, they're not going to be held accountable for their crimes, and they're going to commit these crimes. They say it. So... Um, I'm sorry, I do disagree. So, uh, Chief Satran, um, instead of asking uh, state legislators uh, to maybe tighten uh, some of the changes in statutes or change what they've already done, uh, should the state be uh, advocating or investing more resources in the communities to help kids who make the wrong decisions? Absolutely. Right, are exactly. you advocating for that? Yes, I am. I am advocating for that. If you're going to do this, if you're going to make changes like that, you need to prepare for it. You need to plan for it. You need to make sure that the infrastructure is built so that it can take these kids, not just leave them out there on the streets. Uh, Leon, could you, uh, we don't have too much time, but could you tell us how the state's been, uh, whether or not they've been investing enough, uh, where are the gaps? No, and, and quite honestly, our state has not done a good enough job. We closed the Connecticut Juvenile Training School to significant cost savings, and those savings were supposed to be reinvested. And I don't believe those savings have been appropriately reinvested. If you look at the amount of money that goes to juvenile justice programming, we've been cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting, leaving less room for resources. I'm a lawyer. I work in the system as well. I talk to probation officers who talk about how they have fewer resources resources at their disposal. Connecticut does a really good job of talking about how they want to help kids. It's beyond talk. We have to put our money where our mouth is and provide the services. And what's frustrating for me, as part of my work at the center, um, I run four committees in each of the larger cities where we look at policy-based approaches 
um, to many of these issues that we're talking about. You look across the country, you look in Florida, you look in Arkansas, you look in California, there are best practices that have been shown to be effective at issues like heart theft, things that we could implement and it could be more effective than simply putting a kid in detention for three or four weeks or putting a kid in a confined setting for three months or six months. But we need to have that financial investment from the legislature in order to do it. Uh, speaking of the legislature, uh, Senator uh, Gary Winfield is on the line. Uh, he sits on the Appropriations and, and Judiciary Committee. Uh, Senator Winfield, welcome to our show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, you called in. I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on this discussion. This is not the first time uh, we've had this discussion here on Where We Live, but you're familiar with uh, these conversations from uh, law enforcement as well as the chief state's attorney about uh, there are a group of kids, as they say, that don't that aren't getting any repercussions for their actions, and they're frustrated. Uh, yes, I've heard that, and uh, I, I would say it's understandable. Uh, but also, I think we have to be very careful about particularly when we're in certain positions about the things that we put out to the public. Uh, so with all due respect to the chief um, and what's going on with the situation, I do think it's important that we actually take a look at the data. We actually find out whether or not what is happening is connected to a change in the law. Right? We've changed the law in juveniles in 2009, 2012, and we've changed it again. Um, and to, to, to say that this is directly connected, I, I don't know that, and I would appreciate having the data. I would also say to the chief that about a year ago at the exact same time, there was a car crash uh, on December 4th of 2017. I remember reading about the car crash in Weathersfield, and it's important that we are very careful about what we put forward so that we can figure out what it is we really need to be doing here. Uh, Chief Satran, do you want to uh, respond to Senator Winfield about, uh, I guess, the, the, the conversations that have taken place and, and what's being disclosed to the public about you know, how big of an issue this is? Well, it keeps happening over and over again. And the, the car crash that the senator was referring to happened on the Silasine Highway, and the four kids that were in that stolen car jumped out and ran away. Uh, so I'm not sure I understand what the point is, is the fact is that these kids are committing these type of crimes. Well, they have might, been. If I might, the point that I'm trying to make is it's 2018, and the, the, the incident that happened two weeks ago uh, is put forward as this is indicative of what the change in the law does. But if you go back a year, you see it. If you go back in time, you see these things happening. And what I think is important is that just because something happens doesn't mean it's related to a change in the law. And I think we need to do, as he suggests, step back. But that stepping back is not just to change the law to make it more punitive. It's to step back and to do a real evaluation about what's happening so that maybe we need to figure out why the types of crimes we're really talking about are, are car thefts, right? So crime is going up slightly uh, if you look at overall crime for juveniles or going down, depending on when you're talking about, but car thefts have gone up a lot. So why is that type of theft going up? And I, my point is that we have to be very clear about the data sets we're looking at and then think about how policy should apply to it. And if I may, very quickly, what Senator Winfield is suggesting has been done in other states. You look at in Florida and Pinellas County, they had a similar issue. And rather than relying on rhetoric, their legislature commissioned a study of the issue 
where they looked at the numbers, where they looked at the quantitative data. They also spoke to everyone involved, from the kids to the parents to law enforcement to um, crime victims. And then they came back with all of that information and a clear picture of what was and what wasn't. And then they looked at best practices on how to address it. There is a meaningful and thoughtful way to approach this issue and come up with solutions that will actually work, rather than simply having a knee-jerk reaction to um, a knee-jerk reaction, which may end up creating changes that may not be effective. Uh, Chief Citran, again, just a couple of minutes left. Uh, um, you're familiar with uh, the different viewpoints on this issue. Again, you're president of the Connecticut Police Chiefs Association. How do you find common ground on this issue? I think we agree on a lot of things. I think something needs to be done. I think the, the state needs to step up and to plan and, and do something about the, the interim with these kids. But the fact is, is that the, and I'm not just saying it's just these kids, it's just that type of crime and the ones that we've actually caught have been kids. They have been in that age category that would classify them as juveniles. So whether you're saying, let's look at the data or not, I'm seeing it every day. Whether it's reflected in that data, I'm not sure. But what I am sure of is that the kids that are out there are the ones that are stealing these cars are predominantly the juveniles. So whether the data says it or not, it's a fact that's happening out there. I wanted to bring in a, a comment from a, a viewer or listener on Facebook. Anthony writes, um, how is the current discussion on youth offenders not bringing cuts to youth programs and school supports in Hartford into the conversation? We did uh, touch on this. The city, he says, is operating on an austerity budget. This is the city of Hartford that does not provide options and diversions for teens growing up in extreme poverty. Of course, they're going to be young men acting out and getting in trouble. How do you respond to that, Chief? I agree. Mm -hmm. They need to do something. The state, the cities, the towns, whatever you want to say. But the fact is, is that they're not. Everybody has an austere budget. There's no one that's flush out there with money. But I, if they're going to do these changes, these policy changes, what they needed to do was to plan for them, budget for them, and then you just can't take and take away. The juvenile court has been decimated. I mean, they've mm -hmm. cut back on staff and then they increased the load substantially. We did uh, reach out to the judicial branch and they say they do have the necessary staff to supervise the juveniles who are being transferred uh, to uh, their care. Uh, we're going to have to end the conversation here, but we'll have to continue this at another time. Again, Weathersfield Police Chief James Citran, also Leon Smith for the Centers for uh, Children's Advocacy. I'm Lucy Dalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.